You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. If you're new with us this morning and, uh, and I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Joe, I'm one of the leaders here, and uh, I, I'm excited to just gather with you guys and continue our study in the Gospel of Luke today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. Follow along with me. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and, and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Pray a blessing over God's word before I begin to preach. Jesus, please help us to hear your word today. Help us to hear from you. Help us to hear what you would say. Help our hearts to be open. Help our ears to be attentive. Help our minds to be focused upon what you would say to us in your word. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Amen. Three years ago, uh, in, in, in early August... My wife, Christy, and I, and our seven kids, along with four other adults and three other kids, began to plant the well in our living room. 
part of that process for us was knocking out some walls and making our house feel a little bit bigger so we could fit everybody in there. And what we did was we dreamed together, we prayed together, we studied together, we gathered together on a weekly basis, we would take communion together. We did this on a weekly basis and we would dream and pray about what God was calling us to as far as a community is concerned. And among those conversations, what we did begin to do is we begin to ask the Lord, like, what is it that you've called us to do? Who is it that you've called us to be? And, and, and what is it about our church that, that you want to help us clarify? We, we were asking him to clarify the mission, the vision, and the purpose, and even the values of what our church community would become like as we move forward and continued our efforts in planting the well. We begin to look at like passages like John chapter 4. We begin to look at the woman at the well as Jesus passed through this community of Samaria. And he met with the Samaritan woman at the well, which is why we begin to call our church the well. We begin to look at different statements. We begin to look at different passages. We begin to ask, what is the preferred picture or, or vision of what you see for us in terms of a church community? We begin to find a couple of different things. We begin to find that, that people in, in America today really lack a holistic and biblical picture of what community means. Okay? And, so, and so as we continue to kind of move forward, we wanted to clarify biblically what kind of church community we wanted to be. And so we came up with three statements that we began to come up with as we began to plant this church that we said, we, we prayed and we hoped that these statements would define or clarify for us what kind of community, what kind of church community we wanted to be. Because, and before I go, let me say this, community can be anything for anybody. I mean, I hear people, they come and they hang out with us for a while and they don't come back anymore like, oh, I really wish, I really miss the community of the well. And the problem is, is that those who, oftentimes those who maybe have come and kind of bounced in and out, you know, they kind of come back every once in a while, they, they bounce from this church to that church because they can't commit to a community. The real issue is this, what they love about what happens here is a certain aspect of the community not the entire community. Because if you understood, if you truly got biblically what, what church community was all about, then you would lock in. You would lock in. And so, and so part for us is we didn't just want to be able to say we love community. You'll notice on the sign to my right, your left, the word community makes it into our statement over here. Missional community. Those two words define for you what kind of community we want to build in this church, what we believe God has called us to. And it might be different than other communities. But when we look at Jesus in Scripture, we see him, uh, we see him as, as Jesus on mission. Okay? Jesus was not content just to stay in heaven in this beautiful, sanctified, sin-free place. He came from there to hear on a mission to seek and to save that which was lost, which is the core and central thread of the Gospel of Luke. If you want to know, if you want to take the Gospel of Luke as a book, as a letter written by Luke, if you want to take this account of Jesus and you want to know what is the central theme, the central theme is Jesus in Luke 19 says, 
I came to seek and to save that which was lost, which tells us the kind of community that Jesus wants to build when he gathers his disciples and his apostles around him. It's not just a community that gets together to grill food in the backyard. It's not just a community that gets together and has a few beers together. It's not just a community that gets together and complains and moans about all the other crappy churches in town in the backyard either, okay? I realize the things I'm saying are going to hit some nerves this morning. And there's part of a reason for this because as we look at the text we're about to jump into, what we're going to see on display is the community that Jesus is building And it's a missional community. It's a community of people who are on mission. And listen, the mission isn't for us to gather on Sunday mornings and have great coffee. The mission isn't for us to gather on Sunday mornings or midweek and listen to some fantastic music. The mission isn't even for us to gather together throughout the week and build a fantastic community because if those are the mission, they fall terribly short, terribly short of the real mission, which is to seek to save that which was lost. And people that are lost don't necessarily need community. What they need is Christ. Follow me? You follow me? So as I'm preaching this this morning, I am preaching from a deep conviction that Jesus has brought many of us to in this church community. And so at the same time, I'm simultaneously very passionate about this because this is a value of our church, but it's not just a value of our church because we think it's cool or because Pastor Joe manipulated everybody into believing these things. It's because the Bible actually teaches it, okay? The Bible actually teaches these things. And so part of it is we're passionate about it. The other part of it is we're going to combat something today. We're going to combat something called heretical thinking, untruthful thinking, untruthful biblical doctrine. We're going to combat that as we look at these 72, as we look at what Jesus does in this text. So all that being said, now you go back to the early stages of our church plant in our home. We begin to try to crystallize and to clarify for us as a church, what are we about? Who are we? What are we doing? What is the picture of who we see us becoming someday? What has God called us to? And we clarified it in these three statements. First, being a mission statement. Our mission statement says this, says this, says we are running a rescue mission within a yard of hell. Man, write that down. If it's the first time you've heard it, write it down. We are running a rescue mission within a yard of hell. This defines the mission of our church. It defines the direction that we're headed. It defines who we want to be. It comes from a missionary. And this missionary's name was C.T. Studd. I always say that he was kind of a studly dude, right? C.T. Studd said this. He said, some people want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. In other words, some people want a Christianity that is Christianity light and comfy, But then he moves on and he says, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Saying this, that some people want a Christianity light that is really comfy and easy and tickles the ears. But what C.T. Studd is saying is his quote is this, that God has called me to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. And we believe wholeheartedly at the well that this is what God has called each and every one of us to do if we are in fact believers. Because to say that we follow Christ out of one side of our mouth and then, and, then, and then sit 
and live our lives out on the other side of our mouth and never actually be a part of a community that is on mission, that is seeking to save that which is lost is a contradiction in terms. So I cannot give up the bride of Christ and the community of Christ and the, the body of Christ and then say, I'm just going to sit on my front porch and smoke my pipe and drink a beer and complain and moan about everything everybody else has done against me and then call myself a Christian because that's not Christ-like, my friends. It's not Christ-like. So as you observe Jesus in this text, what you see Jesus doing is running a rescue mission within a yard of hell with his band of buddies. And it's good. The second statement that we kind of landed on was this. If we're on a mission, we, we've got our marching orders. We're, we're like a, a Jesus militia, if you will, w- without guns. Okay, well, some of us have guns. We'll just stay off that topic for now. <laughs> yeah, I'll stay away from that. Okay, so, uh, so, so while we're on mission, we've we got to say, where the heck are we headed, right? We've got a mission for where we want to head. We know what we want to do, but who do we want to become? What is this picture? A vision is just that. It's a picture of the preferred future. See, Jesus has a picture of the preferred future, and it's what he's always pressing towards. It's what gives the mission that he's on gas, fuel, okay? You follow me? The picture that he's headed towards fuels where he's headed, It says it gives him the passion to continue moving. It's the same for Christians today. And so we ask that question, what what is the preferred future for us? And so we would say this. We would say that that our vision is to be a gospel-centered church family that grows disciples who glorify God. Let me say this again. We want to be a gospel-centered church family that grows disciples Who glorify God. Three key words in that statement. Catch them. (coughs) Gospel, disciples, glorify. Without those three, we have no vision. Okay? Just think about this for a minute. Gospel, disciples, glorify. We want to be a gospel-centered church family. You could say gospel-centered community that grows disciples, builds them, makes them, makes disciples. Who glorify God. So you might ask, then what kind of church community are? We are a gospel-centered church community. And we are a gospel-centered church community, a gospel-centered church family that grows or matures or disciples, other disciples who are also gospel-centered and that in their lifestyles are glorifying God with their lives. There are all sorts of people today who will quote the very end of Matthew 18, and they'll say, where two or more are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst, therefore you have a church. Bankruptcy, sorry, not biblical, wrong. That's called taking a text out of context. There's a context surrounding that passage, and to use that one to define church community is a heresy, and America has bought it lock, stock, and barrel. Because the rest of that text actually talks about confronting your brother who has sinned. That's the context of that passage. So we have this statement, three words, gospel, disciples, and glorify, being three words that would define or crystallize or clarify what kind of community we want to be. And this is what we see with Jesus. We see Jesus being gospel-centered, obviously, because the gospel points to Jesus. It's all about him. 
It's all about him. And what comes out of Jesus' ministry is a robust group of crusty disciples who go out and start the church to disciple other disciples who then live their lives to glorify God. One of the earliest statements we had as we were sitting in our living room is that we wanted to be a church family that would live for the salvation of mankind and for the glory of God alone. It's an old Latin phrase that we started with, and it's morphed into this today. So we want to be a gospel-centered church family, grow disciples to glorify God. But you'd ask this question, what does it look like to glorify God? Right? I've got to crystallize that. What does it look like? How will we know? How will we know if we are becoming a church community? How will we know if we are actually hitting the mark or the bullseye? Those of you who love to shoot, love to hunt, even if you don't love to, you play duck hunt on Nintendo, then you know that you've got to aim well to hit the mark. So if we've got a vision and a mission, we obviously have a target in terms of how do we describe or how do we think about or how do we know If we are actually making disciples to glorify God, well, here's the way we've been saying it. We're saying this. We're saying we will know that we are making disciples to glorify God if the people that are becoming disciples in our church are following Jesus faithfully. That's an important word. It's a definer. Like anybody in America could say, I follow Jesus. It's kind of cool to be Christian in my community. Are you really? Do you look like him? Do you act like him? Do you walk like him? Because if you don't look like him, act like him, and walk like him, you probably ain't following Jesus. You just think you are, and it's cool for you to say so. And you should probably quit until you do. Follow me? Faithfully is an important word as we talk about following Jesus. Faithfully. Leading families sacrificially. We use these words intentionally. Sacrificially meaning that as a husband or as a wife, we want to lead our families sacrificially. It's a picture of Jesus with his disciples at their feet with a tub of water and a towel. It's sacrificial service, meaning this should cost me something. In fact, it should cost me a lot because it costs our Savior his life in a very brutal way. So we would say that if we are actually making disciples who are actually glorifying God, they would follow Jesus faithfully, lead their family sacrificially, make disciple-making disciples. Catch that. Make disciple-making disciples. Anybody can walk around and say, I'm like a disciple now. Are you really? You're only a disciple if you're making other disciples. Like if you ain't making disciples, you're probably not a disciple. I mean, these are hard words, but when you look at this text, as we come back to it in a minute, you're going to see that there's a reason that I'm passionate. You're going to see that there's a reason for what Jesus is doing and saying in this text. And it's because the core of scriptures is all about becoming disciples who follow Jesus, who make more disciples, who make more disciples. Making disciples is not about what church you sit in on Sundays. Making disciples is not about whether you smoke or drink. Making disciples is is not about what you wear to church or don't wear to church. Making disciples is not about what your favorite music is or what version of the Bible you read. Making disciples is about making disciples who follow Jesus, who act like him, walk like him, and talk like him. So we're making disciples who glorify God by following Jesus faithfully, leading families sacrificially, making disciples, making disciples, sending spirit-empowered missionaries and planting more 
gospel-centered churches. And so these three statements, mission, vision, and purpose, kind of give us as a church family some context is of where we are wanting to head and who we believe Jesus has called us to be. And, and think about it this way. That's a huge calling. That's a huge calling. Like, I'm thinking about big tasks that are much bigger than I and that I cannot accomplish. One of those being rebuild a motor from scratch, something that's way bigger than me, and I would need a ton of help to do that. And I would probably call my buddy Carlton and be like, dude, can you help me rebuild this motor because this is beyond me. Think of a task that is much bigger than you. Think of something that you are to accomplish that you know that without God's help you will never accomplish and that's the mission, vision, and purpose of us as a church family. That's why we need this text. We need this text because it will help us to understand how to come at or how to do what God has called us to do. We need to hear this text with fresh ears, hungry hearts, because the work of gospel ministry requires that we become a people. Listen, listen. The work of gospel ministry requires absolutely, 100%, it requires that we become a people that is going where Jesus is going. Write that down. Because that's the big idea of this morning. That if we are going to actually pursue the mission that Jesus has given us, the vision that Jesus has given us, the purposes that Jesus has given us from the scriptures as a church family, and I would argue even more as individuals within the body of Christ, if we are going to pursue that, we must be people who are going where Jesus is going. And if we're going to be going where Jesus is going, we must be people who are praying like crazy, facing danger and hardship, preaching the gospel of peace, we will be received by some people, and we will be rejected by others. I can guarantee us that because Jesus was rejected, we will be rejected. And Philip Ryken echoes the very same thoughts this way in his, what I would call, magnificent commentary. I love the way that Philip Ryken attacks or, or comes at this passage he echoes this when he says that this text serves as a list of instructions that shows the priority of prayer, the presence of danger, the promise of provision, the peace of welcoming the kingdom, and the peril of rejecting it. The problem with all of this, as I build through my introduction and actually dive into the text this morning, is that the risk that we run is that all of this feels like a bunch of little mismatched, miscolored beads lying on the floor without something to hold it all together. And so my hope and my prayer for, for all of us here this morning is that we would hear from the Spirit of God and that Jesus would help us through the text to understand that all of these little mismatched, miscolored beads that you may have heard me just throwing out there would be held together with one single theme, one single thread, and that that theme or thread would be this, going where Jesus is going. Because if we are going to be people who are going where Jesus is going, we must be a people of prayer. We will face hardship, difficulty. We must preach the gospel of peace. There will be some who receive what we're saying, and there will be some who will reject us. But what does that look like, right? What does that look like? 
I want you to dive into the text with me. In the text, in verse 1, Jesus appoints and sends 72 of his disciples. Think about 72 of his disciples in groups of two. And the text says in verse 1 that he sends these disciples into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So as I was studying this text, I was really wrestling with, man, what is that thread that holds all these beads together? What is it that holds it together? And that's how I landed on this idea that we must be people who are going where Jesus is going because of that phrase in verse 1 that says, into every town and place where he himself was about to go, Jesus is quite literally in this text sending his disciples to the places that he's going to. Literally, his disciples are going where Jesus is going. And the reality is this, that Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem, right? We learned this last week in our message that Jesus set his face, he focused his face, he set his attention on going to Jerusalem. The the time of his departure is drawing near. He's been ministering among our midst, and the time of his departure is drawing near, meaning the time of his his death, his crucifixion, his his, his, uh, entombment for three days, his resurrection, his ascension to the Father. That time is drawing near, and it must happen in Jerusalem. And as he travels there, it's as though he has a road map in his hand. It's as though he has a road map in his hand. He knows where he's headed. He knows the places he's going to go. And he's getting ready to send these guys out to go where he is about to go. Kind of reminds me of some times when <coughs> Christy or I will get ready to leave the house. And, and uh, we've got seven kids. And so um, our kids, sometimes when we get ready to leave, man, they're all over it. Like, they're putting their shoes on, they're throwing their jackets on, they're getting their hats on. They're like, can I please go with you? Can I please go with you? Can I please go with you? Like, they don't give a rip where we're headed. They don't even care how long we're going to, they just want to be with mom and dad. This is the attitude that a disciple should have that claims to follow Jesus. The attitude of, I want to go where I see you going, Jesus. I want to go where I see you going. As we go, where Jesus is going, then what is expected of us, right? That's, we have to ask that question. We have an idea of where he's headed. We know that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem because the time of his ascension and departure is drawing near. So he's going to heaven after being crucified and all those things. And so we know that to follow him means to be on mission, to seek and to save that which was lost, so that when Jesus comes back in his second coming, he might gather his bride, his church to him and, and bring us into a brand new life in heaven, right? Right? We know that that's kind of where Jesus is headed, but as we're headed there, what is it that is expected of us? Look down at verse 2 now. Go back to the text in your Bibles. Look at verse 2. Notice verse 2, Jesus says this, this, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Have you ever worked on a farm during Harvest season. You ever observed all the tractors and the trucks that are rolling around the streets of town or rolling around the the gravel roads outside of town full of harvesters, full of workers, full of farmers? And the reason is because harvest season is super important, right? The time of harvest is important to farmers because this is when the fruit of their labor comes to fruition. In other words, the result of all their hard work becomes 
visible. It's very important for farmers to get out there and work hard through that season so that their crop can produce as much as possible. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, guys, I'm, I'm sending you out to go where I'm going. And while you are going, where I'm about to go, you need to hear this. You need to know that the work that you're about to do is super hard. It's super difficult. And as you go, it's going to be work. Okay? This is not a calling easy-peasy Christianity. This is a calling to work hard. Not work hard to earn God's love, but to work hard to see others hear the gospel. And he's saying, man, as you go, the workers will be few. The workers will be few, so, so you need to work hard to pray a lot to the king of gospel work. The king of gospel work is the one who can and will send out many more workers of the gospel for the work of gospel ministry so that there may be an enormous harvest of the crop of the gospel. In other words, if we're going where Jesus is going, we must be committed to praying. Going where Jesus is going is hard business, right? But think back in Jesus' life, right? a little bit of interaction with the scriptures, you will be reminded that in Jesus' ministry, he did many hard things, a hard business. In fact, it's impossible to do the same things that Jesus was doing and to be going in the same places that Jesus is going if we are not a praying people. Jesus ministered to people who were under demonic oppression, right? <coughs> Jesus ministered to people who were demon-possessed. He ministered to people who were sick. He ministered to people that were in the shackles and the bonds of lifelong sickness, illness, and sinfulness. So for us to go where Jesus is going means that we would go to some of the same places. Broken marriages, sexual addictions, substance abuse, poverty, dysfunctional families. If you're going where Jesus is going, you and I, we will need the supernatural power of a committed prayer life if we are to survive and see the fruitfulness of a gospel harvest. The work is hard. The workers are few. But the work of the gospel is priceless because it cost Jesus his life. It's priceless. Will you be a person? Are you a person? Will you become a person who is going where Jesus is going. And will you spend your life on your knees begging Jesus, begging God to send more workers so that the gospel may produce a harvest? Will you pray fervently and consistently and desperately? Will you pray desperately as though lives depend upon God doing his work? Will you pray this way? so that some might come to him. And in the midst of all this, we, we have to acknowledge and understand that the work of gospel ministry, while it's hard work and, and takes those of us who must pray consistently, it's not only that, but it's also dangerous. Jesus didn't call us to an easy-peasy Christianity. He didn't call us to a cush lifestyle, did he? Look at verse 3. Verse 3, Jesus says, go your way. It's another way of saying, hey, as you're going, Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. 
Have you ever watched an episode of National Geographic? Ever watch an episode of Nature? Ever watch the Discovery Channel? Any of those channels that show some of those nature shows where you can observe a pack of wolves preying upon weak and sick sheep? Have you ever seen a wolf dive in and rip to shreds a a sheep who is weak with illness or is just flat out tired because that predator has been preying on them relentlessly. You ever watch one of those kind of horrifying and gut-turning? It's a bloody massacre to watch what a wolf can do when it gets in among helpless sheep. And our work in gospel ministry is no different today. Our work in gospel ministry is no different. When Jesus sends us on mission with the message of the gospel, there will be plenty of opposition to the message by ravenous wolves that are seeking to devour the sheep of God. And this is why it's important to understand for us this morning that that if we are going where Jesus is going, we will face danger and hardship. This hardship that Jesus is warned against in this text comes in the form of wolves that will seek to destroy the very ministry of the gospel, the ministry of the gospel that is meant to save, the, the power of salvation. Apostle Paul, when meeting with the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, and when writing to Timothy in Timothy chapter 3, warns Timothy and the elders to watch out for wolves. Watch out for wolves or men that will arise from within their midst seeking to lead people astray. These are very direct, very straight warnings in Scripture. This threat is still very real today, if not worse. If not worse than when Jesus gave these instructions to his disciples or when, or when Paul gave these instructions to the Ephesian elders or to Timothy. It, it's worse today than it was then. Listen, Jesus came from the right hand of the Father's throne. He came from the right hand of the Father's throne in heaven as a suffering servant Savior who went out in the midst of wolves. Get this picture in your head of Jesus. He comes as a lamb. Isaiah lays this out clearly that Jesus comes as a lamb among wolves, as a lamb who was silent before his accusers, who was silent before the shearers, who was silent before his murderers. And he went into the midst of wolves to be torn apart brutally and murderously bloody horrifically, terrifyingly, Jesus was torn apart like a lamb among wolves for our sake, that by our trust in him, our wholehearted, sold-out trust and faith in him, we might be saved. And now, in this text, Jesus is sending his disciples, the same as he does for us. He sends us out as lambs, helpless sheep, lambs among a pack of wolves that will be bent on tearing helpless sheep apart. But here's the cool thing. Here's the cool thing. As you study the scriptures, you not only get this picture of Jesus as a helpless, suffering, lamb, servant, sacrifice, atoning for our sin, paying the price paying the ransom so that we might not only get out of jail for free, 
but be given a brand new place to live. It's not just that peace that we see of Jesus, but in the message of the gospel, we see a picture of a lion. We see a picture of a lion. Jesus is the lion of Judah. So as he sends us out among lambs, like lambs among wolves, we can rest in the power and the security and the assurance and trust by faith that though there will be wolves who will come against the very message of the gospel, the very work of Christ in us individually and in our church community, Though we experience that, we know we come in the power of the Lion of Judah. Can somebody say amen? Amen. We serve a lion who can rip any wolf to shreds. How about that? Wow. Have you ever, have you ever had anybody talk trash about you because of your bold stand against sin? Have you ever had anyone slander you outright slander you because of your courageous stand against the bonds of sin. Have you ever had someone laugh at you because you chose to live in holiness rather than the ways of this world? Ever had people mock you because you shared the gospel and the need to repent and believe with them? And rest easy, my friends. Rest easy because Jesus is the king. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah and he goes before you. He justifies you. He saves you. He sanctifies, cleanses, transforms you. Christ is your rock. He is your fortress. He is your strong tower. He is the place you hide. He is your covering. He is the one who changes you. There is no hope outside of Christ and in Christ and Christ alone You and I, as we go where Jesus is going, we can face difficulty and hardship. This brings us to point number three in our text in verses four through seven. And if we are going where Jesus is going, we must preach the gospel of peace in word and deed. Listen to me for a minute. The peace that we gain through Christ and the work of the cross is a peace between us and our Father in heaven. Eric referenced this earlier as he shared from Hebrews during our time of communion. Our time of communion where we celebrate the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. That was done on our behalf because the scriptures point out that apart from that and aside from that work being done and aside and apart from our faith and trust in the murdered and broken and bloody body of Christ, apart from that we are his enemies, meaning he will destroy us. Because of Christ, we can rest in saving faith that says, you are now my children, you are no longer my enemies. That gospel of peace with God, we must preach in word and deed. Meaning, if we truly have peace with God, it won't just be our words that proclaim it. It'll be our lifestyles that scream it. If we truly have believed in the gospel of peace, it won't just be our words that proclaim it. It will be our lifestyles that scream it. What does your lifestyle say? What does your words say? 
Do your words, does your lifestyle preach the gospel of peace between man and God? Jesus says in verses 4 through 7, he says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will, ret- will rest upon him. <clears throat> if not, he will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. All along in this text, Jesus has been saying, hey guys, I'm sending you out on a mission I'm sending you out on an impossible mission and you'll be going where I'm about to go. You'll be going where I am going and as you go where I am going, you will need to pray like crazy. You need to pray like lives depend upon it. You'll you'll encounter danger and hardship such as you've never seen because you'll be like sheep among wolves and you'll also need to preach the gospel of trust the gospel of trusting in God, the gospel of peace. You need to do this through word and indeed. In other words, take only what you need. Trust me. Trust me to be your provision. Take only what you need. Travel lightly. Don't get distracted by the passers-by on the road. Stay singularly focused on the message of the gospel as you go. Preach the message of peace and word indeed. And when you find a place to stay, stay there. Don't go from house to house looking for a better paycheck or a better stake. Just stay right where you're at and let God provide for you. He also says in verse 6, he says, If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. And if not, it will return to you. Think about this for a minute. This little phrase can seem to be a little bit confusing as you look at it. I think what Luke intends, what Jesus intends is that we would understand that God knows who his people are. God knows whose are his. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. God knows the people who belong to him. The good shepherd knows his sheep. Your peace with the Father is secure. If you have trusted, if you have believed If you are trusting, if you are believing, it's an ongoing thing, not a one-time thing. Too many quote-unquote Christians today say, well, I trusted Jesus on August 19th of 2002. And because I trusted him then, I'm now a Christian. Does that mean you're not trusting him now? You believed in him then? Are you believing in him now? That's the question. Are you trusting and believing in him right now? Because if so... If so, then God's peace will rest upon you. Jesus knows who are his. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And oftentimes for us as we get on mission, as we share faith, as we, as we run a rescue mission within the art of hell, as we seek to be a church, we seek to be people who are gospel-centered, who are raising up other disciple-making disciples who live for the glory of God, as we seek to follow Jesus faithfully, as we seek to lead our family sacrificially, as we seek to make disciple-making disciples, as we seek and look to and follow Jesus and where he's going, as we seek to raise up missionaries, spirit-empowered missionaries, as we seek to plant gospel-centered churches, there are times when we will be rejected. And at those times, it can be easy to question your own faith or your own abilities. But the reality is that we should rest firmly in the God who gives us peace. Amen. Thank you.
But what about times when, when people receive? Okay, we're going to dive a little closer into this. What about times when people receive or reject? Because it's going to happen one way or the other. People will either receive you and the message you bring and the Jesus who is at work in you, or they will absolutely flat out stiff arm you, not only stiff arm you when they reject you, that they will try to cut your head off. Okay? When this happens, and it will, it's not an if, it's a when. When this happens, what are we to do? How are we to walk through those seasons when people either, A, receive us, and the Jesus that is at work in us, and the gospel that is saving us? What are we to do? What are we to do when they're rejecting us? The scriptures here are clear. Jesus gives us some clear instructions how to be prepared to be received or rejected. <clears throat> look first at eight, verses 8 through 9. Look back at verses 8 through 9. Jesus says, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, there's that word, receive. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So in verses 8 through 9, Jesus gives us these very practical, very how-to instructions on how to handle those who receive the ministry of the gospel. In other words, if we are going where Jesus is going, we must be prepared to be received by people who are receiving Christ. What does this look like? Jesus says that when we are received, we are basically to rely on those who are coming to Christ. We are to bless those who are coming to Christ. We are to proclaim the message of the gospel to those who are coming to Christ. Look, when Jesus says this, he's basically saying, when someone receives you, let your lifestyle of trusting God be obvious as you rely on your brothers and sisters in Christ for your every meal. He says, eat what is set before you. Rely on your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is why I keep saying that those of you or those of us or those in our community that bounce from one church to the next but never put down roots and I get it, I understand, because in our culture, in our culture, family sucks. In our culture, family is broken. In our culture, community has been devastated. And so we are afraid. We, we lack this ability to commit and rely. But Jesus is saying, man, when somebody receives you, you are to commit and to rely on one another for your provision. Eat what is set before you. Two, let the gospel you preach be confirmed by the good deeds you do for those who receive Christ. He says, heal the sick. One of the most primary ways that the gospel became visible throughout the scriptures, throughout not only the gospels, but also through the book of Acts, one of the primary ways that the gospel became visible was by people being healed. In our day and age, it's not just the proclamation of the gospel through word, but it's the proclamation of the gospel through deed. Let me ask you guys, how good are we doing at caring for the needy? How good are we doing at getting out of our little boxes and caring for one another? How good are we doing in community of letting the gospel motivate and drive the way we provide for one another in our midst so it's not just about verbally preaching it's about in word and deed as well we are also to verbally preach today there is a rank heresy going around that says i can just preach the gospel in my deeds you don't need words really 
It's funny because my Bible is written with words. Say that, start with. It seems pretty basic to me. Um, so I, I would tend to feel that anybody who thinks that you should try to proclaim the gospel without words is <clears throat> short of being an idiot. Just short, just shy, okay, just shy. And as I say that, I, I have actually bought in to this type of theology, so I'm preaching to myself at times. The point is this. It must be preached in deed and in word, that your, your actions should match the words that come out of your mouth. This is the entire book of James. Once again, go back and listen to that series. Your actions should match your words. should say to them, as the text says, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God has come near to you. Jesus is coming. Jesus has come near to you. You've seen it in our actions. You've heard it in our words. Jesus, the gospel has been preached in your midst. Say that to them, Jesus says. What about those who reject us, though? Like, can we, like, just call fire down from heaven like the disciples in the last text? We're asking fire down from heaven. They don't believe. They're rejecting us, Jesus. Kill them with a sword. Get out the AR. No, not exactly what Jesus has in mind. Maybe it's a great idea to start publicly arguing theology, like in the public square with those who disagree with the gospel, who reject Christ. Maybe it'd be great to gather the troops and talk trash. Maybe we should do that around a bonfire in the backyard this next week. We should just gather and we'll talk trash. Can you believe they act that way? Can you believe they're living this way? Can you believe they said that? We should do that maybe. Like, like we could grab our Bibles and we could just like go toe-to-toe. Like, man, you're wrong here and I'm right here and you suck and blah, blah, blah. I got the truth and you're false and whatever. Like just name-calling. We can get on Facebook. We can get on Facebook and just let everybody know, right? It's interesting because there's actually some truth. There's a level of truth. There's a thread of truth in everything I just said. Look at the text, verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets. Huh, similar eerily similar to Facebook today, go into its streets and say, verbally say, okay, uh, publicly say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this. Second time we've seen this. Nevertheless, know this. The kingdom of God has come near to you. And he moves on to giving all of these woes. He talks about how it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom, like Sodom and Gomorrah from the Old Testament. We remember, God wiped that city out with fire. Fire. It's going to be easier for them than for these guys in this text. Why? Because the gospel has come near. The gospel has been plainly preached. Jesus himself has come and they have rejected him. It will be easier for Sodom and Gomorrah, who got eaten by fire, than for these people who actually heard the gospel. Man, it just kind of makes everything better, doesn't it? I mean, does anybody else get that fuzzy feeling? Maybe it's just me. But it's kind of, it's kind of like, oh, well, if you reject it, then on one side, I'm, I'm totally broken for you because it's going to be worse for you than for Sodom and Gomorrah. So I'm broken. And my heart's cry is that you would hear the gospel. My heart's cry is that you would hear Jesus. My heart's cry is that you would hear him speaking to you. My heart's cry is that you would be changed, transformed, and saved. 
It's not pretty. It's not pretty when Jesus gives instructions on how to handle people who reject the gospel of the kingdom of God. And in fact, it can be downright earth-shattering like if you really contemplate and think about this text. If you take the time to deal with what Jesus says in these final six verses of scripture because in them we catch this glimpse of judgment day. Not like Arnold Schwarzenegger judgment day, but like like biblical proportionate judgment day, like book of Revelation judgment day, book of Daniel judgment day. There is a time when Jesus is coming back on a horse, a white horse, his clothes drenched in the blood of the saints, those lambs who have been devoured by wolves, devoured and rejected and persecuted by people who reject the gospel. Jesus is coming back with his robes drenched in that blood on his thigh. On his right thigh, if I remember correctly, tattooed, great tattoo. King of kings, Lord of lords, Lion of Judah. Comes back. He's got lightning bolts coming out of his eyes. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. This is my warring king. This is my king, Jesus. He's coming back that way someday. And all of the hardship, all of the pain, all of the hurt, all of the broken relationships, all of the sin that has held you back will be conquered once and for all. That's the Jesus we serve. That's the Jesus we serve. So you can reject me all day long, but the reality is that my Jesus in this text says that you're not just rejecting me, you're actually rejecting Jesus. It's not just Jesus you reject, it's the Father who sent him, and the Father will send Jesus back as a warring king someday. Man, man. This final piece is, is the key. This final piece is the key in this entire instruction. I would invite some of our musicians back to the front as we conclude. This final piece is the key. It's it's the key because you will be rejected in the midst of gospel mission, in the midst of gospel ministry. You will labor hard as a worker during harvest. You will invest yourself into people until it hurts. You will pray relentlessly for the gospel to change hearts. You will sacrifice for the sake of the gospel in the lives of people because this is what it means to go where Jesus is going. But in the end, some people will reject what you say. They will slander you. They will say hurtful and untruthful things about you. And listen, It doesn't hurt unless those people were your friends. This is why Paul says, watch out for men will arise from among you as wolves seeking to devour. This is why it'll hurt. It's part of gospel ministry. This is part of breaking through that crusty layer in a community and seeing the gospel planted deeply that then comes back up in the midst of a harvest of that harvest being a community of people who are on mission going where Jesus is going seeking to save that which was lost this is part of that rejection there's a key in this text 
Yes, Jesus does instruct us to respond to those who reject us by rebuking them publicly. He makes that very clear that it's okay to rebuke them publicly. They're wrong. They're wrong. Publicly. It should also release any control that they have over you. Any relational control, it's okay to release that, to shake the dust off of your feet. Remind them that they are without excuse before God. You have no excuse. You've heard the gospel. You reject that, it's worse for you than it was for Sodom. Can't imagine what that would be like. Most likely because the fire that consumed Sodom was momentary. The fire that consumes eternally is worse than that. Should also warn people not to reject God. Receive Christ today. You might ask, how do I receive Christ today? You might be here and you might be thinking, I have received Christ because I've been to 50 different churches in town and I've heard the message and I've responded. You might think, I've received Christ just because I am sitting in a church today. I've received Christ because I grew up in a Christian family. I've received Christ because I have Christian friends. Amidst all of this heavy stuff, one of the key pieces of instruction here is to receive Christ and to go where he is going person who is going, where Jesus is going, hears Jesus. Verse 16, as we wrap this up. Verse 16, Jesus says, the one who hears you, hears me. Listen, preachers are not infallible. Preachers are not perfect. If that's what you came looking for, you better go somewhere else. Preachers are not perfect. I know my sin I know my heart. I know my mind. I know the thoughts that I think even while I'm preaching God's word. I know. And if you saw them, you'd be horrified. You'd be horrified. If you hear Jesus speaking through me today, my prayer and my hope is that you would submit and surrender to a Savior King, the Lion of Judah, who doesn't take you and make you comfortable, but he takes you and makes you right so that you can begin going where Jesus is going. That moment for you might be right now. We'd invite you forward to spend time in prayer with some of us. We'd love to pray with you if this is that day where you say, I have become Christ's and Christ has become mine. I'm now saved and my life is hid with Christ on high. No other thing can come against me. There's no wolf, no man, there's no beast. There's no angel. There's no sin. Not even me can separate me from the love of God, Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for this message about going where you are going. I pray, Jesus, that you would continue to make us into that church. Pray, Jesus, that you would continue to help us to go where you are going. And for those who are with us today, those who are worshiping and gathered today, but I pray that if anyone was touched by words that, that I preached, that you said, and I pray that you would continue that work, produce a harvest and a crop of gospel ministry through them. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Thanks for letting me preach today. I love you guys a lot. 
You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. 